0: Hey, welcome to the 69th episode of Two Writers Singing Yang. My name is Jeff Perelman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a writer for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is a brand new song from MC White Owl, Football for a Buck, in conjunction with my recently released book of the same name. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms—from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And this week's episode, features Tyler Tynes, the SB Nation writer and author of one of my favorite pieces from last year, "There Is No Escape from Politics," which I selected for the newest edition of the Best American Sports Writing. And Tyler, a native Philadelphian who's worked for several newspapers, is a guy who has a whole bunch of thoughts on race, on politics, on race and politics, on sports writing. He's not shy. He's not afraid to speak his piece, and he's right now on two writers singing Yang. Tyler, first of all, thank you for joining me. As we both know now, I was I was the editor of the Best American Sports Writing this year, and I put your story one of your story one of the stories I selected was yours, and it's called "Football Is Our Escape from Politics." And it's one of my favorite stories of the year, and I I really want to deconstruct it. But before we get to that, real quickly, you wrote something today that I just love. And it's only a paragraph. I mean, it's part of a bigger story. The Carolina Panthers today signed or yesterday signed safety Eric Reed, who had been unsigned for a long time. He was one of the guys who protested the anthem and was very outspoken. And then teams just shed themselves of him. And this is what you wrote. You wrote, "Reed is here out of necessity. There is a hole to be filled, and the best player got the job. That is not courage. These moments are not products of fortitude. It is doing the baseline of good in service of money and winning." First of all, I love that. Because it's true. And I wonder, I was thinking this when I was reading your stuff and I was reading this. You see sports in such an interesting way and you see it in a much larger way than most people do. I don't, it doesn't strike me that you're watching a football game and you just see third and four as, oh, third and four. Like, I I feel like you see the societal implications of, of sports playing out all the time. And I wonder, can you even enjoy panthers 49ers on a sunday does it even can you watch it and just be a football fan or is that
1: impossible so so to start that right like yes i can definitely be a football fan and the reason i can look at sports this way is because i love sports so much um i i i don't really get bored with sports and i'm from philadelphia uh north philly i mean i mean i mean and so because i'm from north philly the eagles is something are, are something very close to my heart and philadelphia sports is something extremely close to my heart and so There's no way I don't love sports. I think for me, however, especially in in this thing that I consistently reference as the decade of protest, we're seeing more and more during this athletic revolution and resistance that athletes, just like black people, just like lawyers, just like anybody who can hold a, a delineation, a duality of their race or their gender in their actual patriotism of America are fed up with a lot of shit that happens here. And it's spilled over to every point of politics. And I think the the charade here is that a lot of white people and consumers in that bunch believed that sports was some oasis away from mm-hmm. the political chagrin of like the everyday. And that was never true, but it was what, especially a place like like the NFL could build itself as without anyone poking holes in that thing. Right. And so if, if that's true, right. And if that's always been true and if history can, can be a guide for us, a, a cyclical guide, really for us to see that these issues have always popped up and have always happened, not only in sports, but in every single league. Well, nothing's new for me. <laughs> I just read a few right. books. Nothing's new for me. It's, it's, it's just like, okay, I expect protests to happen in the NFL. Just like I expect revolution in some sort to awaken itself in the black body when necessary. And, and in that black body, it might happen to be in sports. It might happen to be in protest. It might happen to be someone like, um, psh- I don't know, maybe, you know, a Brittany Packnett or a DeRay McKesson or, you know, even someone you might not know in Baltimore, you know what I mean? Like, it it doesn't matter. And so these these are things that happen because of where America has placed itself directly in conflict with anybody who's not a cis-hetero white man. And so for me, I can enjoy sports because I grew up black, I have to live black, and nothing for me is changing in the fear I have being black and just walking around America, walking around the world. And so football doesn't change anything like that for me and hockey doesn't and basketball doesn't. I try to enjoy it, but I think it would be wrong to not also see those implications. And I think it would be duplicitous to not even try to have the conversation about it. Right. Um, I'm a,
0: I I would say I'm, I'm, I would say good friends with uh, uh, among others, Howard, Bryan and Jamel. And I've had this conversation with them about the, why do you always have to write about black issues, or why is it always come back to being black? and isn't there more of the blah, blah blah blah, blah, blah blah, blah blah blah? And I wonder, how much of that have you gotten in your young <laughs> career, and how do you sort of I mean, because it drives me crazy when I hear people say that. How much of it have you caught, and how do you deal with it?
1: i I look around and I think uh, for somebody as young as me, I'm sort of in the crosshairs of a product of what the decade has dictated, right? And so comparatively to the civil rights movement, we're looking at a radical form of protest that has swept up almost every part of America, whether you agree with it or not. Right. Whether it's the movement for black lives, whether it is in, encapsulating some form of Me Too, uh, Time's Up, if it's encapsulating this, 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 this more, more so leaning white feminism resistance movement after the Trump election. um, the Protest is here and it's radical. And it's not going to be quiet and it's not going to be. Uh, you know, perfumed. And it's not going to be silent. It's going to be as radical as it can be because the decade has dictated it to be that way. With that, you have people like Wesley Lowry and Gene Demby and Tremaine Lee and all of these people who have uh, Yamiche y- y- Sindor who have gone to these spaces and they've had to cover Ferguson. They've had to cover Milwaukee. They've had to cover Sacramento and they've had to cover Baltimore and all of these different police killings where now newsrooms see this as a necessity, or some do, where these black and brown people, these black and brown women and and men have to be in their newsrooms because newsrooms are behind the cuff. The Guardian reported in November 2017 that 87% of journalism jobs go to white men. And if that's the truth, that means that journalism has always been behind the curve and will continue to be behind the curve because black and brown people aren't actually in these newsrooms. And if they are, there's not enough retention to keep them there and there's not enough of the, the actual white gatekeepers to put them in places where they'll actually succeed. And so the original question you, you put, and this is a long way of saying it, obviously, is that, you know, do I ever get tired of that? Yes and no. I do because sometimes and, and people like Elena Bergeron, who's our editor in chief, encourages me to not only write about the 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 down and dreary things that come across my beat, you know. When the Super Bowl happened, I went to Philly and wrote about the crazy yahoos that Philadelphia, you know, happens to keep in love <laughs> and why they're getting excited yeah. for a Super Bowl. Right. Last week, I wrote about uh, Stephen Jackson and why you should not try Stephen Jackson. You know, because that a lot yeah. of times is a relief from all of the black pain and from all of the, the gloom and doom that comes across the desk. Right. So right. I do get tired of it sometimes. And I do get tired of the white people and sometimes the black people. Who happens to question my job as if it is something that I'm incapable of doing other things. I worked at HuffPost and was covering Congress and a bevy of political issues. I worked at three newspapers (laughs) and not only covered the entirety of a sports desk, but the entirety of a general assignment desk. And so there are many things I'm able to do, but all of those different things make me very good at what I'm doing right now. And so it's a real big privilege to be in this space because this job doesn't exist in 95% of newsrooms. Right. So right. it, it's it's definitely both, right?
0: You um you 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 said something in an interview uh, a while ago that really caught my eye. You're talking about working at the Press of Atlantic City, where you uh you you began your career, and you wrote um, my job here was code for you're only 21, and we don't really value you more than most of the people in our newsroom. You're going to sit at your desk for around nine hours per day and rewrite press releases about foxes and rabies and other things that only our market cares about and really isn't news. So I kind of started that way too. I was young. Mm-hmm. I was at the Tennessee Inn. I sat at the cops beat with the with the scanner. Why is that? And I feel like getting my ass kicked actually taught me a lot. And I wonder you you seem to not really feel that way about your time at the press of Atlantic City. And I'm I'm fascinated why.
1: So to correct that, um I feel both ways, right? Um mm-hmm. I feel that rewriting press releases and writing about foxes and rabies for a three county news distribution market system is a waste of young journalists' time in some ways, right? I mean, there's not much I'm going to learn rewriting a press release. The police sends me and I can't ask no questions. Now, inversely, I think every young journalist and specifically every sports journalist should go and be a general assignment reporter because the more and more that I've come out, I mean, I was, I came out of college three years ago and recently I was in Austin at the online news association conference talking to students that were HBCU fellows from Tennessee State and Savannah State and Howard University and, and, and Spelman and so on and so forth. And one young man was a sports reporter and he, he, you know, he was doing sports at his local newspaper. And it was the same characteristics of every sports reporter that, and some that are now 40 writing for major newspapers. There's no depth. There's no nuance. There's nothing the reader actually needs at this current moment that would help them understand the news more. And so if that's not the baseline of where we're coming from, then somewhere along the line, we failed. The gatekeepers of journalism have actually failed to teach you anything that's worthwhile at all. And so I think it's important that you do the general assignment beat. I think it's important for every young journalist to get their ass kicked up and down a a county they don't know. You know what I mean, learn how to do the finances, you know, suffer through that depression like I don't wish that on anybody, but I know it helped me and it's it, 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 it it's it's a good teacher of what journalism could ha- you know could offer. Mm-hmm. but if there's a way around that, hey man, go ahead and do it. I just know me sitting on a desk for eight hours a day, and most of the time I'm rewriting press releases where I can't ask any questions felt like some bullshit, <laughs> and not to have editors who were willing to help me also felt like some bullshit. Also being the only Black person in my newsroom and allegedly the sixth Black person to ever be on their city desk, that was also some bullshit. And so it's also a piece of what you originally asked me a question ago of, like, does this get tiresome doing these Black issues? It does, again, but in those situations, it doesn't because if I'm not the one who's going to actually put my neck on the line and try to do these stories, we're going to keep the same cycle of how we see Black life and death in our newspapers in every single county. And so... If I'm in Atlantic City and I'm on the desk and I see something that is affecting the black people I actually live around or the brown people I actually live around, I would like to tell their story because nobody else gives a fuck to do it. And so I think it would be a disservice to the public service that journalism is if you're not looking and tasting and seeing and feeling the same things that people who don't even look like you or do experience and try to at least bring them into your newsrooms and push for certain stories to be told or ones that are close to that.
0: Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who's taking a break from Teen Mom to talk to 503 sports. So, I love reality television. I know you do, so I want to throw an idea at you, being an expert and all. Fire away. How about this? We follow around a sexy, mature, balding writer as he talks 24 hours a day about the United States Football League while dressing his son in a rainbow coalition of throwback sports jerseys while eating his own toenails. I feel like I love that. All right, how about this? We throw in a lifetime supply of 503 Sports merchandise for the guy's wife. Wait, did you say 503 Sports? I did. XFL jerseys? Minor League hockey hats? Seattle Pilots t-shirts? Yep. I love it. I love it, too, because 503 Sports, is sponsor of this podcast, sells so throwback gear from the World Football League, the Canadian Football League, the XFL, Minor League Baseball, Minor League Hockey, and even the USFL. It's all handcrafted and beautifully made, so be uh, not like Catherine Perlman and visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 for 10% off your first purchase. I'm going to ask you a question, and you might tell me to fuck off, and I'm comfortable with mm-hmm. that. Um, I am a... Uh, you know, like you, I'm a big consumer of news and sports news and whatever. And I would say there's no writer slash media personality in America who makes me angrier um, than Jason Whitlock. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like he allows racist white America to feel valid in their opinions because they can say, look, this guy, there's a black guy right over here. And he agrees with everything I'm saying. He's literally saying what I am thinking. So how can I be racist if he's saying it? So that's great. I mean, I grew up in a tiny little racist town. I know people feel that way when they hear people like him sort of spewing the same views and from the same perspective. And it just drives me freaking crazy. Why am I wrong?
1: Well, I mean, I I don't know if you're wrong. I think someone like that, and obviously keep this brief, I, I think someone like that allows for white people to feel comfortable in their racism. And I think if we don't expand the the idea of what racism is, right, then we can never really try to begin to understand it, similarly to sexism, similarly to misogyny, similarly to any system that keeps the unprivileged, you know, and daunted, you know what I mean? Like, if all these systems are keeping their foot on your neck as the unprivileged, then you can never really get anywhere at all. We're seeing that this week with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And for someone like Whitlock, who plays into an audience like the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and Fox Sports One. I mean, there's nothing appealing to him except to people who want their own biases reaffirmed by somebody who doesn't look like them. And racism is pervasive. Like, I, I, I don't think white people need reasons to be racist, right? Because I think if we understand racism, whiteness by itself and by design is racist. Because racism is a social construct. And no matter if you are, I yell racial epithets racist, or, you know, Northeast Boston racist, or super Jim Crowy Southern racist, it doesn't matter because white people always are going to be profiting from the privilege of what whiteness actually is and looks like in this country and around the and around the world. So whether you never say racist in your life, you know what I mean? Like, if you're white, you're still racist because that's what, what racism looks like. It's like, if you're a man, you're still, you know, profiting from the patriarchy and could be misogynistic. It's just how systems work. So for Jason Whitlock, I'm the fuck. <laughs> You're saying, Like yeah. he doesn't bother me. And so he doesn't bother me because I think his shtick is very well known at this point. I just think it's sad that somebody like that not only continues to get paid, but also can profit off of black pain and black misery and black things as if we're not a living, breathing thing that he tries to make us out as a monolith. So not much you can do with somebody like that.
0: Interesting. You just used one of my favorite words, monolith, which I use about 17 times a day. It's one of the best words of all time. <laughs> Um, all right. So you wrote the, you wrote this story, uh, football is our escape from politics. And, you know, I wrote about it in the intro of the, the best American sports writing because the story is crazy. And I don't even mean, I don't mean the content, although the content is crazy, but the story itself is crazy because it, I feel like whoever your editor there is a SB Nation, you should bottle that man or woman up and like, the story is all over the place. It's like here and it's there. And I could see a million editors' heads exploding. This is a story that gets sent back 98 out of 100 and says, you got a blah, blah, blah. It's not linear. It's not this. It's not that. And I, it was probably my favorite story that I read for this book, to be honest with you, because it was so freaking illogically constructed and yet kind of perfectly constructed. It's the weirdest story I've read writing style-wise, that I loved in a long, long time. And before we get into that, I just want to read the lead real quick. You start with a quote from Trump, and it's, uh, by the way, everyone wanted to be here today. And you write, it is the day Donald Trump is meeting with the Stanley Cup champion Pittsburgh Penguins, and I'm sitting in the basement of the White House with a group of black folks. The group is made up of journalists, cameramen, all here to watch the day unfold. The mood is light, we talk, joke, but it's hard not to recognize how surreal this scene is. Here we are on this October afternoon, black, in a house built by slaves, a house where the first black president used to dance with his black wife, laugh with his black kids, and enjoy the company of his black friends. That was then. Now, upstairs lives a president who is there largely because he is not black, whose campaign was built upon the thinly veiled promises to return the power to the majority, to make things the way they were before a black man was present. We eventually walk inside the East Room, listening to the president speak, his words twisting in the pretzel logic we've somehow gotten used to. I can't help but think how weird this all is. Gone are the days of Obama dancing with the Northsiders and Cubs on one of those last days of administration. The White House felt warm, inviting, and even loving on Obama for folks like me. This place feels cold, aggressive, and devoid of anything harboring black joy. By the way, everyone wanted to be here today, Trump says, smiling, and I know why. His smile is one I recognize. It's one that doesn't quite involve his eyes. I'm not, I'm not joking. It's a fucking brilliant, brilliant story. It is so ridiculously good. Oh, my God. I love this. Story. I read it to <laughs> my wife when we were driving one time. I read again this afternoon. It's a great story. Where did this come from? Like, what is does he give me the origin of this story?
1: Right. And so I think also just something that you had said is that, you know, this is something that gets sent back 98 out of, out of, out of 100 times. Let's not get this confused. This got sent back several times <laughs> between awesome. editors at SB Nation. You know what I yeah. mean? And I, I think, uh, you know, I, I lean a lot on the tutelage of, of the editor-in-chief there, Elena Bergeron, who – was was pivotal in hiring me and taking me away from the Huff from Huff Post because I had never worked for a, a black editor before, let alone a black woman. And I think I think very highly of Elena Bergeron. I think she's one of the smartest people in media. And she went from senior editor to executive editor, and now to SB for an editor in chief. And within that, you know, she 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 brings people like Nate Scott, who's a soccer you know woo kid and, and loves the most horrible music and and dresses like a twenty one year old. He's like thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diana Sarkanov who is just brilliant and an amazing line editor. Graham Macquarie, who has a thousand degrees and is one of the smartest developers you'll ever find. Uh, uh, Tyson, one of our developers, who is also has a brilliant eye. Frank Bai, who a brilliant eye. And they've put together a team of editors and line editors and narrative scholars and people who have been in the game for so long and are so different than what you get in a, in a regular newspaper that something like this is only possible at a place like SB Nation. Look at what John Boyce has done. Look at what Spencer Hall has done. Look at the people they've collected, the cadre of writers that could be nowhere else in the country. Natalie Weiner, Sarah Sohi, uh, Christian Winfield, Harry Lyles, Kofi Yoba, uh, uh, Richard Johnson. The talent that's in the room is what can make something like this happen, period. It's it's a talent that pushes and grinds swords on swords so that something like this can happen. Because I look at what Spencer Hall can write in his openers, I'm like, shit, I can never write anything like that. I look at the way Natalie Weiner can can look at the intersectionality of of where gender in sports is. And I'm like, shit, I need to read more. I look at how Richard Johnson and Charles McDonald can break down plays. And I'm like, shit, I don't look at football that way. I see how funny Harry Lyles is. And I'm like, shit, I'm not that funny. And so people like that are what produce the other things as well. And Mm -hmm. so this happened for me because in in the way that we kind of do journalism, SB or the newer way they're trying to do it, is Elena is always asking me and always telling me everything is leading to something else, right? And so every story you're doing at the start of quarter one is leading to something maybe in quarter four, right? You okay. always want to be writing and reading and feeling, and there needs to be a conclusion involved. If you look at what ta Coates, Adam Serwer, Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, writer, writers of the time have been able to do The Atlantic and places like that, other magazine-style places, they're constantly not only writing, but it's leading somewhere. You know, if mm-hmm. Adam Silver was writing five things in the Supreme court and now the second redemption court is a story he writes, it shouldn't be a surprise. Just like if I'm writing the story on Eric Rita, you know, this week, and then I'm writing before that, a story from the white house in June about Colin Kaepernick. If I'm writing before that, a story about Colin Kaepernick and Nike, then it shouldn't be a surprise if some 6,000 word thing just appears by Christmas. Right. Mm-hmm. In the same way that was last year. And so last year, You know, it was the second season of athletic descent within the NFL, and looking at last year, I I had been in New Orleans finishing a nine-month investigative feature, right, right around follow source situation about Cardale Hayes in that case, and then I got off that, and I, you know, Kaepernick files his exclusion lawsuit. It's off season; no one wants to hire him. We're going to the second year, and I'm like, is this done or is this not done? And then we have that summer where so much is going on. There are people in front of the NFL headquarters multiple times in a summer. There's a 1,000 to 3,000 people on the corner, on a corner of 52nd Street in Manhattan who are protesting because this man doesn't have a job. Excuse me. Hey, Mohammed Muhammad is there. Uh, rappers are there. New York folklore is there. And so it becomes this thing where it's protest after protest after protest. There was Charlottesville happened and there was a march from Charlottesville to Washington, D.C. when they were talking about Kaepernick and there are letters going to newspapers every day that I'm getting in my inbox about Kaepernick. And I'm inundated with so much Kaepernick and so much protest that I'm saying, OK, one or two things is going to happen. Either they're going to say, fuck this, and it's going to be over, which the assumption behind the closed doors, as the NFL was trying to figure it out, was and from advocates who were talking to the NFL and players was they're not that organized. We don't know what's going to happen. There's a, a faction of the Malcolm Jenkins side of, of players and a faction of the Kenny Stills, Eric Reed, Colin Kaepernick side of this. And we don't actually know what is going to happen. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Once Donald Trump went to Alabama in a rally and called players sons of bitches. Well, OK, right. now you have a bunch of players on the Raiders, a bunch of players in Buffalo, a bunch of players on the Ravens, a bunch of players in Philly who are saying, what the fuck can we do? And no one had a good answer. No one had a good answer on what to do. And so they all had this different amalgamation of things they wanted to do. Some people actually kneeled. Some people actually sat. Some people did black power salutes. Some people didn't do shit. And like, okay, right? The onus can't be on black people to fix white crime. So like, whatever you want to do in this moment, okay, but it will be recorded in history. So then you have Monday night football. You have Jerry Jones kneeling. And at that moment in the week after that, with all the statements each individual team put out, that was very scripted to unity. I was like, oh my God, this is some bullshit. Yeah. Does anybody else see that this is bullshit? And I one of was, our I more, yeah. One of our more brilliant essayists, uh, Zito Madu, he, he wrote that. He's like, this is bullshit. And I, I talked to him and, and once I started to get thinking about it, I was like, hmm, okay. I called maybe five to 10 professors. I called a few players. I called a few advocates And I just wanted to have conversations. I wasn't recording anything. I wasn't I wasn't taking copious notes. I just wanted to have a conversation about what people thought was going on. And I went to my editor at the time, Nate Scott, and I said, hey, man, we've been in these streets, you know, at at protest to protest to protest for this entire month. Something is happening, and I don't know what it is, but I need to find a way to contextualize it. So can you leave me the fuck alone for three weeks? And he was like, I don't know what that means, but maybe? And we get into this thing where sometimes I'll disappear at SB Nation where I'm like, you know, I'm not putting something on the site, but I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. And it's always it's always very hard to justify. And sometimes I don't really actually have good reasons and I have to get yelled at, and that's fine. It gets me to work again. So like it's not a big deal. And so that happens and I'm starting to read what professors are telling me. I'm starting to read excerpts from nineteen sixty one with Lenny Moore. I'm starting to read uh forty million dollar slaves. I'm starting to read all of these different texts. And eventually I'm like, okay, there is a clear line from what Frederick Douglass is thinking was in the 19th century about sports on the plantation, about bodies being kidnapped from Africa and now brought here through the Middle Pass in and triangle, in, in triangle Trade to now we're at a point where, okay, the Black body arrived in America. The Black body was always besieged. Sports started on the plantation. The most inventive way that we've seen this was Tommy Molyneux. Okay, now let's jump over to what Frederick Dulles said and is creating a timeline where all of this should have always made sense. If you've paid attention to where American history is and how cyclical whiteness and white racism and anti-black racism has become in the country where black athletes have said this forever. Black patriots have said this forever. Black people have said this forever. And specifically black football protests happened in the civil rights movement and protests in general, athletic protests, where why was this new? And so to me, I was like, okay, I had read a thousand things. I always keep a running document of things I haven't read that I need to read that might point me in a direction of something that I'm trying to work out in my mind. A lot of times it doesn't it doesn't yield anything. Sometimes it does, and it yields that. And so it's like, okay, that makes sense. And then I brought this all to my editor. I said, Nate, just give me two hours and I'll explain this. And he's like, okay. And we got in a whiteboard session. And I'm writing all this on the board. I'm like, okay, so it goes from here to here to here to here to here to here. It's these five books. It's these six sources. It goes here. Here's public record information. Here's this. There's this. There's this. And he's like, this doesn't make fucking sense. And I was like, no, it actually does. Just follow the timeline. And that's kind of how it, it began. And that was in September. And the story didn't publish until December. But I had been thinking about this possibly in June or July, but it didn't make sense then. Once Jerry Jones took a knee and looked directly into the camera and smiled, that was the cementation for me where it was like, okay, this is a thing. This is absolutely a thing. And I don't know if anyone will ever articulate this, but I feel like I should. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. God damn it. Fuck it. But if I'm not, we could be on something actually magical.
0: Wait, let me ask you a question. Were you in the, I don't know the timeline on this, the Stanley Cup, when you were at the White House for the Penguins, mm-hmm. was that- before you even came up with this idea and you were just there for something
1: else? No, 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 no. I think I I want to say that was around October 11th. Okay. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say that was around October 11th. By that moment, I I went to the white house to specifically ask folk questions. I didn't go just because I usually go to the white house when, when teams come anyway, whether I write or not. Um, I was there when Obama and the Cubs were there. I was there, uh, when the Eagles came, well, when the Eagles didn't come for Trump, um, I'm usually there, you know, whether you see me or not, I'm usually in the building or around the building in some way. Hmm. Um, and so I was there to ask questions. I wanted to ask the head coach of the Penguins if he thought this was bullshit. And I didn't expect him to answer me truthfully or for what I assumed the truth actually was. And I wanted to see in person how Donald Trump was going to twist this logic. And so I, I went with a purpose for that one, at least.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I guess he lived up to your expectations.
1: I mean, yeah, (laughs) you know, I mean, I I don't know what folk expect at this point. Ain't going to be nothing new. Right. He is who Um, he is.
0: Yeah, of course. You, um, it's really interesting. You talked about this there. You talked about a, uh, uh, a fight in 1810. You talked about, uh, Johnny Bright of Drake university, like all these kind of random, not random, but not off the top of the head moments in history of African American athletes either being exploited, being uh, physically, de- you know, decimated,
1: etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, like, how did you even know about Johnny Bright? It's fu- it's funny. I was actually doing a radio interview with WNYC or WYNC, how, whichever one is right, um, and I was talking to one of their black producers. I forget her name um, off the top of my head right now, but. We were having a conversation during the pre-interview and she had mentioned Johnny Bright. And I said, I don't know who that is. I know who the guy at SMU is. I know who Daryl Hill is. I know who Paul Roberson is. I know, I know know who Jack Trice is. I I know this history, but I don't know Johnny Bright. And she was like, you, and explained it briefly. She was like, you should look up Johnny Bright. And I happened to do that that exact night. and, And it turned into this hour, two hour long reading of texts, reading of this 1980 article from the Iowa, uh, uh, the Des Moines Register, rather, um, and, and, and just and just this journey where I'm just like, well, shit, he's so similar to, um, and I'm, his name is escaping me at the, at the moment, but the, the first black football captain at Yale, who we had mentioned in the story from Sport Magazine in 1949, who said that he couldn't play football with white people. And that Levi was so Jackson. interesting. Levi Jackson. That was so interesting to me, only for the fact that we don't often see white people and white violence and white rage enact itself on the football field so viscerally. Mm -hmm. And so I had maybe seven examples that I could have pulled out and magnified the same way we did Johnny Bright. But Johnny Bright felt right because everything around the situation, even things he didn't make it to the story, was about this, this, how the black body was being used for pain. And and how no matter what the black body did, especially within football, pain was a result of protest because protest was assumed whenever you stepped on the field because schools had not integrated at that point to give a shit about black people. And so every time a black person stepped on the field, and if you were as good as Johnny Bright was, where he was getting looked at by the Giants and the Eagles in 1951, was a preseason Heisman candidate, it was like, okay, no, he got to go. And so much so that once he was attacked on the field and once he had his jaw broken and Drake never played football again at that point. It was to the point that the Klan was sending letters of affirmation to the white player who tried to kill him. They wanted him to run for Senate in Louisiana. And so nothing to me in in, in the same shaping is different. Right. It's like, okay, this happened because we've allowed an environment to surface where white people don't feel as if they are threatened. And that has always been the norm of American history so much so that we're seeing Brett Kavanaugh feel as though he should not be questioned by the Senate. Right. Right. Whiteness
0: very... is always. Go ahead. Yeah. Now I was going to say, what's really interesting is um, actually i actually had this, uh, I had this discussion with my son. My son is 11. And this morning mm-hmm. he was talking about history and he's taking history in school. And um I, we were talking about how when you look at history from afar, it seems like things took place forever ago. You know, from his perspective, 9-11 wasn't even in his lifetime, but, you know, that uh whatever, Kennedy, or we were talking about Abraham Lincoln. Like, Abraham Lincoln was mm-hmm. not that long ago, if you actually think about it. And I feel like people look at things like Johnny Bright, and someone would say, well, that happened in 1951. That's forever ago. Or even the boxing match you were talking about, 1810. Um mm-hmm. Like, these things, it that like they're forever ago. And of course, people will say, "Oh, we should move on." That was a long time ago. They weren't that long ago. That's the interesting thing about it. People think like we've moved on or we've moved past, or it's an ancient, ancient time period. It really isn't.
1: The only people who want to move on, by and large, from shit that they did is white people. And so, for me, I can't move on from shit that's happened to me. Right? Like, there's there's a different duality there, a double consciousness, as Du Bois would say. That exists for people that's not white, like white people want to move on from shit that white people did. That's real convenient for whiteness, because, you know, if I was white, I probably want to move on from the heinous shit I do, too. But I'm not. And so for me, I have to examine these things because it is a part of my actual humanity as a 24 year old at this point. Mm-hmm. And so I know for me, I, I think it would be wrong to not study history as if I'm preparing for a test. You know, because these are things that consistently pop up, right? Like, Colin Kaepernick's not an anomaly. Now, what he did is something we've never seen in sports. But Colin Kaepernick, by, 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 by you know, by measure, is not an anomaly. You mm-hmm. know, Bill did it in the 60s. You're know right. saying, like, Lenny Moore did it in the 60s. You're know mm-hmm. saying, athletes came up to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and had conversations with them. Martin Luther King once said to Jackie Robinson and players like him that, y'all make my job easier. Because some people don't want to hear a preacher in a protest. Some people want to look at an athlete to tell them they're wrong. Because the thing about white America has always been, especially as blackness has integrated itself within white sports for white consumers, is that the only time where blackness can intersect itself for white consumers, not music, not politics, not anything like that, is sports because there's a score. You can see who's winning. And so if winners are telling you something is wrong, it changes the metric on what you believe is factual, right? If Colin Kaepernick takes a knee during America's song, there's rage there. Because for some white people, the Star-Spangled Banner sounds like March Madness, which it don't. That shit don't slap. And so in that way, it's like, okay, why are you doing this? Why are you desecrating football? Why are you desecrating America's pastime, America's church? Why are you fucking up this oasis I've, I've, I've come to to get away from politics? Mm-hmm. Probably because inherently these sports that we love and cheer for and we get tribalistic about have always been political and they will always be political. Yeah. And so it's really hard for me looking at that history, looking at the long public record of what black athletes, whether they are mighty or small, have always said. I mean, this has always been the case. And so the fact that there are newsrooms across America that do not dedicate resources to actually look Introspectively at the intersectionality of race and sports or race and, or race and gender or gender and sports or the bevy of things that exist there is a disservice to the actual constituency of journalism. Why, why is it, why is it now that in the current magic, if you think broadly of national outlets, the shadow league exists, color of hockey exists, the undefeated exists, I exist, Greg Howard used to exist, Joel Anderson used to exist, Um, um, the man who made $40 million slaves, we used to be at the New York times, Bill Roden, you know, like, why are these jobs coming and going from newsrooms instead of staying stagnant? Why doesn't the New York times have somebody like this? Why doesn't CNN? Why doesn't the Washington post? Because there's a fear there. Why people don't actually want to give a shit about this. If they did, the money would, the money would be there. Why did it take Ferguson for someone like Wesley Lowry to exist? Why now, they dude, wait, let me ask you a ton ton of question. of schools, you know what I, I mean?
0: Like Wait, I'm, I'm interested by saying, so you, um, mm-hmm. I'm you say, you know, you say, you know, white people don't care about this and I, I actually care about pretty much everything you're saying here. Um yeah. And I agree with you. I would say 98% of what you're saying here, I, I don't even have the 2%, I don't agree with it. I'm just, just throwing it in there just in case. Um, yeah. Is it, I mean, you, you sort of group, I almost sound like, the, I feel like I sound like the person in the, uh in Malcolm X autobiography, who's like, aren't, you know, when, when the white student walks up to Malcolm X and says, is there uh what can I do to help? And he goes, nothing. Um, Like, <laughs> do you, I mean, do you group all sort of whites? You're, I mean, obviously you, you named a ton of white journalists who so you respect and our peers and I'm sure friends. Like, do you feel like I hate I don't think of myself as a collective with, with, with other whites. Do you, I don't know. Do you feel like there is a, do you feel like white journalism is a thing that based, based on my pigmentation and my background growing up white in America, I just can't escape having certain sort of thoughts or ideals or, or are you talking about a certain group or how do you sort of view that?
1: Whites are whites. And so I think it goes back to the thing I said earlier here when it comes to the systematic issues here, right? Right. And so if America has always sold this this fictive dream that uh, Americana and Manifest Destiny are actual attainable things for the unprivileged, okay, right? Let's put that in the corner. Uh, If that's a thing, and it's been a thing that can be, let's say, maybe the basis of how a lot of our order of operations people go, Mm -hmm. then white people have to all be grouped in because white people are white. White people can benefit from white privilege. I can't buy that shit on the shelves. I wish I could. That shit powerful um white people can benefit especially in journalism circles from especially white men being afforded 87 percent of the jobs that are actually coming available in these newsrooms white people are the majority of ceos in newsrooms editor-in-chiefs head honchos they are the gatekeepers of how this thing can perform evolve and transform and so you, you ask about grouping all white people together i do that for a reason because nothing has made me feel as though they should be separated whether it's white people who are liberal or white people who are conservative or white people who are centrist or white people who are white people and don't have any political affiliation, whiteness works in a way that from birth, there's an actual money count of how we are different. If on average black people start in assets at 13 or 14 thousand dollars, 17 thousand dollars tops, and the average white family or white person starts at around 150 to 160 thousand dollars, we are automatically different Because the history of the country and the perpetuity of the country says that we always will be. And so until that shit changes, I mean, look, I mean, hey, ain't no money being put in my account. So that's kind of how it has to be. In the same way, there are things that white men go through that black men don't go through and vice versa. However, because patriarchy exists, men are very different than women. There's a, there's a, there's a gender pay gap, right? And so, I think that's the way fairly to look at it. And the people who are of the majority and of the privileged sect will say, oh, I feel bad by you saying that. I don't give a fuck, right? Because you still have the privilege to feel bad, right? Whereas women, especially women of color and especially black women, whereas people, especially black people, have to go through and yell and scrape and cry for that to even be acknowledged as a reality of America. And so until we have to stop yelling to get heard, ain't nothing changed. Look at the Kerner report. Yeah. The Kerner report's fifty years old and it's gotten worse. So have we actually changed? Or have we gotten worse? Yeah, that's
0: interesting. I mean the only I guess the only thing I feel like is uh you sit here so you sit here as a white guy in America. And obviously I did not you know, you don't control what your pigmentation is and you're born and you exist and you do your best and you try to sort of You know what I mean? Like, just like you were born as an African American guy, I was born as a white guy, and there's not that much I can, like, I can't escape that. Like, I'm not saying you're going to say, well, you wouldn't want to escape that. I don't, it's not like I think of it that way. Like, you're right. You grow up white in America, you have advantages, and it's bullshit, and it's not right, and it's not fair, and it's garbage, and you do your best to sort of make that not true. And Mm -hmm. I do feel like, in a way, if you, if you group all, of any sort of ethnicity, race, gender, blah, blah, blah. And you equate them all as equals based solely on their race. You're kind of dooming people to a fate. They don't really want to be doomed to, or you're presuming them something in their inherent nature. When as a, in a, in a, in a collective, and I always think a, a collective, there are flaws in grouping people in a collective.
1: This ain't to say ain't no good white people. You know, I like listening to Megan Trainer and shit. So like. <laughs> ain't, ain't, ain't well, that's you. not you. That's your I'm fault. Not, <laughs> hey, man, she got she got some bangers. You know, Kelly Clarkson <laughs> got some bangers. You know, Sam yeah. Smith got some bangers. You I mean, white people done Smith, did a few good Smith. things. Y'all yeah. made bread and shit. That's bread's lit. Um, I'm just saying that within that collective. Yeah. Yes, there are not many things that white people can do. Do I think that's fair? I don't really care because slavery happened. So I think the first way we can rectify this, white people, if y'all are listening, pay my rent. My Venmo is Tyler Tom- Pay my rent. <laughs> if y'all feel bad about being white, pay my goddamn rent. I will take all of that and I will mark you off the list of good and put you on a list of good white people, just like Santa Claus. Y'all want to feel better about yourselves, pay my goddamn rent. I love some good sneakers. I take all types of gifts. I drink Henny. So, hey man, that's, that's the quickest way to do it is, is pay my goddamn rent. And, and you know what? I will let you go on and, you know, be sad about being white and I won't question you. But I think the first start is, Jeff, if you'd like to pay my rent, I, I'm willing to have my rent paid.
0: So. Well, you know, I told you, uh, before this, so you get $100,000 for doing this podcast.
1: There you go. Shit. Well, yeah, you, my rent's paid. Um, but I need you to you- send a check. I need you to send a check in your name. Know, yeah. It's in the mail. It's in the mail. Uh, <laughs> don't hold your
0: breath. Um, what, how long did it take you to write the story? <laughs> to get back to the story, it's about 4,500 4, words ish. How long did it take yeah. you to write it?
1: Uh, four or five weeks, maybe.
0: Oh man! Like from I the time guess. you first sit down and write.
1: Uh, maybe. I, I. I. It was. It's very much a blur. I want to say. I'm definitely not saying like the first draft took four weeks. I'm saying the process of when I first put pen to paper to, Hey man, let's run this shit. Might've been four to six weeks, maybe eight weeks. And you send it in. Do you feel good about it? The story? Yeah. You send it in your
0: first filing of it. Are you like, I just nailed it. This is the best.
1: I mean, I think that anyway, cause I ain't shit. Um, anybody who knows me would tell you I ain't shit. So I, I would feel that way anyway. Most of t- most times. Uh the story was much longer uh when I gave it in than, than than what it ended up being. I can't say whether I agree with that or not, but I think we accomplished what we had to do. And I also think that there's a book that can be written about that subject matter. And so I think for me who has all the thoughts and has done all the research, it becomes very hard to whittle that down to four or five thousand words, you know, when thought is like this is a hundred year history, maybe, you yeah. know, and so maybe yeah. even longer. And so, again, Bill Roden wrote $40 million slaves. There are books just like that, Darwin's Athletes. And, you know, the, you know Lou Moore does an amazing job in his contextualization of the moment of, of athletic resistance. And he's written mm-hmm. several books. We Will Win the Day, uh, uh, um, you know, um, blanking from my head. But David Leonard uh, at, at, at Washington State has written amazing books about playing while white. And so the resources are out there and the books are written. So for me, it's just like, okay, I have all of these books. I have all this knowledge. I have all these thoughts, right or wrong. I don't know how to whittle that down. So I think the foolish thing of being 24 is assuming that, hey, editors, y'all can fix this. And that's not true. <laughs> and So sometimes I know the first story that one of the first bigger stories I did for Elena. I was 22. I went to LA for about 10 days. Uh, to cover Kobe Bryant's retirement and what that looks like for multiple communities of color in Los Angeles over the last twenty years, and I thought I was being slick, and I gave Elena sixty five hundred words, and I was like, "Oh, here you go, take this thing," and she like laughed in my face and was like, "Let me know when it's thirty five hundred words." That okay? That's bye. awesome. And, yeah. And I'm like, what, what, "What am I supposed to do with that? What am I going to do with that?" And so that that's that's a little bit of the culture here. You know, so it, it I mean it's tough. I think you want to find the perfect um, you know, ritual with your editor where it's like, okay, look, I'm gonna tell like I think you should be truthful. Like, hey, look, this might not be what you're looking for. I might not understand this, you know, whether that, you know, gets across or not, you want to just be able to be like, hey, like this is what I'm giving you. Right. right. Like we we did a profile on JD Schulton. A Democratic candidate running for Congress, um, in the Iowa 4th district, one of the biggest in the country against Steve King, a very avowed white supremacist. And we went to Iowa. We, I've known JD since February. And that was a thing that I think it started at 77,000 or 7,500 words. It ran at 5,500 words or so. And I think I gave my draft in around 6,000, 6,200. Mm-hmm. And so, I think you just have to be honest with yourself sometimes and tell your editors beforehand. I know with that profile, I came off the road. I told my editors, hey, I need to transcribe a whole lot. Give me about 12 days or so. Maybe I said seven to nine days, and I will flip this copy for you for election day in the primary in Iowa. We did that. I mean, I self-edited. You know, I, I was probably on draft three before I gave it to my editors, and it was very seamless. That's a dream. That doesn't always happen.
0: Right interesting I feel like all writers especially young writers um, and you're definitely a young writer it's not hurtful it's a, it's a good experience to have your stuff smacked around beaten up sent back five times I think there's a real I hate it when I go through it I never liked it when I was young I really hated it when I went through it but I think ultimately there's kind of a value in that thickens your skin and actually teaches you how to write tighter
1: I like to talk a lot of shit Jeff you'm saying and I feel like you know when I, when I'm talking about it I'm like okay, you know, I'm cool with my shit getting punched, you know, like, yeah, my shit's supposed to be edited. You know, I'm not like some mm-hmm. perfect first draft writer or whatever. But then, you know, once my shit gets punched and I'm in the, the process of getting my shit punched, I'm like, I feel like I want cuss, you know, yeah, like, I feel it like hurts. me and my editor are supposed to fight. Well, I feel you like we're supposed to fight. Yeah, you
0: take it personally. Of course you do.
1: Yeah, you know? we, we, I mean, we, I mean, like, I don't think it's I don't think you can be a writer and have longevity if you don't want to beat your editor's ass, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't think every quarter it's just supposed to be happy go lucky. Like, ah, you such a great editor, ah, I love you. I think during the process you should want to beat your editor's ass. And if you don't, I don't know if what you're writing is going to be great. Well, because I think I think what happens is you learn to pick your spots. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've said that to my editors more than once, where it's like, hey, I know what I feel about this story. Um, there's maybe two things I want to keep in this story. I, I, specifically in the JD story, you know, since we're talking about that, Mm. it was one of those things where it's like, Hey, there's only two pieces of this story. I want to keep. I don't give a fuck about the rest of it. I want to keep this section where we talk about race very, very fluidly. And I want to keep this one or two graphs talking about America and Iowa. And, you know, that wasn't much of an argument and they, those stayed right. I think if you can be truthful about those things, the, the drafts go quicker. Um, and I think you have to know that on the onset of pieces as well, right? Like there's something I'm thinking about working on we're in the pitch process for it, where I've been thinking about this most of the year. And so it's like, okay, I'm gonna be very, very particular with a piece like this. That's how I was the day of reckoning. I was very, very particular with that piece because it was like, hey no, 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 no. This is like in my in my gut, in my heart, I was like, this is the thing. This is the story that is gonna do numbers this is the story that's going to be great. This, this is going to be my best story of the year or very close to it. And I was very like, I was, I was like, nah, every word you take out, we fight <laughs> every, 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 every punctuation you take out, we fight. But I feel that may, maybe 5% of the time. My yeah, editors I'll probably won't that. say that, but I feel that way <laughs> internally 5% of the time. I
0: totally get it. I totally get it. Well, uh, I freaking love that story, man. I really do. I think it's just great. And, uh, yeah, I just love it. I hope you. I hope. I hope you got the. Uh, I hope you got the satisfaction of that story. That the. Uh, I hope the satisfaction met the work you put into it because it was a freaking, really brilliant piece. And uh, I feel like I am better for having read it. So bravo to you for writing it. Seriously,
1: I, I think that's the point though. With why, at least to me, uh, why this job should exist in more newsrooms and why it does at SB Nation is that I know for me, I look at journalism as a public service. Um, especially within the intersectionality that I'm working with, I look at very much like, okay, I'm not doing this because I'm looking for satisfaction. I'm not doing this because, you know, I give a fuck about being some sort of vaunted ass writer. Like, I don't, I don't give a fuck about any of that. Right. I'm just a kid from North Philly who has gone through a whole lot of shit. And I never thought that being a national journalist twice by 25 was an actual thing that was possible. And so at this point, this is public service. This is work that is being done for constituency that we've shown at SB Nation that really gives a fuck about this work being done very truthfully and very and and, and raw. You know, they don't want anybody to just dance around the topic. They want you to tell them and write as if you feel what's going on. And we've seen results from that, overwhelmingly so in almost three years of work. And so I care more about that than I do about anything else, because I, I don't think Journalism is so hard on on the mental that, especially for for black and brown writers, it's so hard to stay in journalism that I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't truly, truly believe in the things that I'm doing to the point that people are are coming back and athletes are coming back and are like, yo, I'm happy y'all exist. I'm happy y'all are doing it this way. I I trust y'all to tell this story. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Since you're doing it
0: for public service, can you send me your page?
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> Um, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm broke as shit. Um, in, in, the, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I'm not rich until, you know, I'm a millionaire. And so, yeah. no, you're, in the, wrong no. you're in the wrong profession, man. You're the wrong profession. I mean, I mean, maybe. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of, a lot of millionaire ass journalists. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know. I yeah. ain't saying some easy shit. I'm just saying, you know, it's out there. Money out there. <sighs>
0: yeah i guess money money
1: money money out there jeff you out here writing bestsellers and shit the money out there
0: you haven't seen the checks you haven't seen the checks form but uh you know keep the dream alive Uh, (laughs) Um well listen seriously i uh i I thank you so much for doing this i uh i hope everyone reads that piece i hope everyone sends you money every white person listening to this podcast please send tyler a check for 100 bucks each is that is that fair
1: what, I mean, honestly, you know, whatever you can give,
0: whatever um, you can give,
1: I, 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 you know, I just need the money. Not cause like, you know, like I can't function or pay bills, but like, I just think white people should be more open to reparations. And if that means like $10, if that means $10,000, I will take your motherfucking money. I will take your Go money on. and I will have no remorse about it. I mean, black people too. All people, if y'all want to send checks, I, I I take checks. So, you
0: know, what you're going to be getting. You're gonna be getting in the mail. I don't have. I'm not gonna send you money, but I have about 50 copies of my Roger Clemens bio from six years ago, and I, I'm gonna send you those.
1: And I don't want that shit. that. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying. What up, do you I'm mean? It's as good as I money. I want that shit. It's as good as money. No, 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 no. You know what's as good as money? Money is as good as money, <laughs> or like some off whites. Like, like you can send sneakers too. I wear a size nine. You can send sneakers, right, but like the money, the money would be preferable.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for doing this. Seriously. Uh, yeah, man. Thanks for having yeah. me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my, my pleasure. I want to thank today's guest, Tyler Tynes, for joining me on Two Riders Singing In. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at TylerRickyTynes and read his stuff in SB Nation. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My new book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to two writers singing Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the legendary MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember,
1: keep writing.